Hello and welcome back to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. This is episode 17 with my good friend Bill Martin, former athletic director at the University of Michigan, the founder and owner of First Martin Corporation, uh, the founder and owner of Bank of Ann Arbor, and of course, the former president of the United States Olympic Committee. That's a long enough resume for anybody, but don't forget, also the founder and owner of Casey's Tavern across the street, one of my all-time favorites. So anyway, without further ado, let's get on to Bill Martin. Bill, good morning. Hey, good morning. Great to be with you, John. And let me correct you already. You made one mistake so <laughs> far. Uh, I am not the sole owner of the Bank of Ann Arbor. Wish I was. There's about three or 400 of our community members who are. There you go. That's an that's a important correction to make there, of course. Uh, one of several founders, I believe, in the process. Absolutely. So always quick to give out credit there. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, as I have in a chapter on you years ago, uh, the kid from the Keweenaw, you had in some ways an idyllic childhood, in some ways a very difficult one, uh, but oddly split between Detroit City proper and Rabbit Bay and the Keweenaw Peninsula. This is a very rare combination. Uh, it absolutely is. And people, to keep in context how far Rabbit Bay and the Keweenaw Peninsula is away from wonderful Ann Arbor, it's further than New York City. <laughs> Still in the same state. <laughs> Still in the same state. Absolutely. But uh, So you grew up in inner city Detroit, basically, and your dad? Yeah. My dad is an immigrant from Cornwall, England. My mother's an immigrant from um, Finland. And the, hence, that's why there's such strong roots to the Keweenaw Peninsula, because a lot of the Finlanders migrated to that area and worked in the copper mines. In fact, an unusual combination of Europeans, the Finnish, who are known to be very taciturn, and the Italians, less so. So, And these are the guys in the copper mines in the old days, of course, making our pennies. Exactly. And the famous pasty from the Upper Peninsula actually is from Cornwall, England, where it was imported to the United States by miners because in the coal mines in um, England, they took a pasty down, something you could eat an entire lunch with one hand. On lunch with one hand and heat it up on your shovel over the fire. So, That's right. That's uh, I've right. had many of those pasties. I don't know how healthy they are for you, but they're damn good. And they fill yeah, you up. They do. If you're in a mine, not a bad thing. Right. So. And, and you show them after you've had them, too, <laughs> right around your waist. <laughs> <laughs> they're, not, they're not for the skinny, no question. So uh, in many ways, an idyllic childhood, as I said, older sister, pretty close to her. Um, and then, of course, when you're 12 years old, your mom passes away. Yes. And that's, there's no spinning that. That's got to be incredibly hard. Yeah, it is a challenge at that stage of life. And ironically, uh, a year later, my dad moved to Florida, and I literally spent my high school, last three years of high school, living by myself in Detroit. This is before Child Protective Services might be aware of this fact. Yeah, it all worked out. <laughs> it all worked out. Uh, you ended up being the athletic director at the University of Michigan, one of the big sailing leaders of the world. Um, of course, the president of the USOC. And yet, of course, you're not, you could not play high school athletics because you had to work. Right. Uh, all through high school, I did work. I enjoy working. I still work today. And uh, I worked in the stock room of a company that sold two products that you couldn't find on the shelf of any stores today, carbon paper and typewriter ribbons. <laughs> Kids, look those things up. I swear to God, they're, yeah, <laughs> they're very important when I was growing up. So that's all that I'm getting, I guess. So, office supplies. Uh, you worked your tail off, of course, mainly working your jobs. You worked on a ship. We'll get to that shortly. 
but you got into Wittenberg College thanks to the Lutheran Church connection. Right. I, I had no knowledge of uh, Wittenberg, and uh, the Finlanders are all Lutheran, and so that's why I grew up in a Lutheran church in Detroit and in the Upper Peninsula. And one day I found a little sheet of paper in the church about uh, Wittenberg, and so they would take me, so I went. (laughs) (laughs) A little simpler back then. (laughs) A lot simpler. Uh, I I enjoyed the experience. Well, it's clearly an important one for you. We'll get to that in a second. But I am struck oftentimes, my theory when I teach my class here at Michigan, individuals matter and moments matter. It's not all inevitable. It's not all just uh, a, a slow process. That little piece of paper and you having the initiative to say, this is a good idea, let's try it. Um, life-changing. Right. Ab- absolutely. And at that stage of life, you know, I, I didn't have a strong propensity to be an academician. I was more interested in let's get on, let's get a little bit of knowledge, and let's see where it leads with no idea of what professional pursuits I may uh, accomplish or like down the road. Just, you know, get on with it. But there you were, and you were getting on with it. Uh, you encountered a teacher that you felt changed your life, English teacher. Oh, yeah, that was Professor Coyle. He was quite interesting, very, very demanding, but very, very fair. Uh, I love the guy, and uh, he uh, I never was close to him. I feared him in class every morning, <laughs> and I always prepared for his class. But as a result of that, I, I majored literally in English uh, while I was an undergraduate there, knowing that I was going to go on probably in one form or another to the business world. Uh, But look, English can never hurt you, says me. Says you. Partial English major, of course. English and history, my friends called it double pre-unemployment. So yes, (laughs) (laughs) not quite business, but uh, there you go. Uh, Quite a contrast to a high school teacher. And I got to get into this one because it's a great lesson in this point, who told you, and Um, I quote. Oh yeah, I know what you're getting to. Uh, one day, uh, Mr. Conkle, I don't remember his first name, grabbed me as I was going out of the, his classroom and said, uh, Bill Martin, you're never going to amount to anything. And I always remember that. And probably my performance in his classroom justified him saying that. Nothing quite justifies that, <laughs> I would argue. No matter how old school you want to get. And I heard that myself from a teacher, by the way. So here okay. we both are. But uh, but that shows you don't say that to students. No. It's, it's a chapter six in my book. Let them surprise you. Never tell anybody what they can't do. Let them show you what they can't do. If they can't do it, then help them. But don't tell them no. Uh, so Wittenberg changes your life in a lot of ways. One of them, of course, almost as important, perhaps, for your future career. Uh, your fraternity, of course, plays a big role in your life. Yeah, I did because I lived in that fraternity house for four years straight. And, you know, in my own way, I selected that fraternity <clears throat> because it had the greatest facility that was located right on campus, so you could roll out of bed in the morning, (laughs) and five minutes later, you're in the classroom. (laughs) And that was... If you're 19, that's a very big consideration. (laughs) It was, and I I had no idea who was going to be my fraternity brothers, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I ended up working for the fraternity, kind of managing the kitchen, and we had this wonderful black a female uh, cook, and she taught me so much Hmm. about business. Wow. Uh, She was great because negotiating with the different suppliers to buy food, 
she would always say, now, Bill, here's my recommendation. And I just followed whatever she told me. She was absolutely correct. I'm going to add that to our future work, by the way, because that's too good a scene right there. You were, in fact, the house manager of the fraternity. Yes. And in that role, that was a pretty quick business lesson on how to manage finance, how to manage people. Exactly. Um, and how to manage other businesses. You had contact, you must have had, with 5, 10, 15 at least sure. other businesses. Absolutely. I remember one thing that I did on my own. Uh, Myra, that was the uh, cook's name, she said, I, I don't think we need that. But I purchased this uh, potato peeler, which was a big pot with rough sandpaper on the inside, and you put the potatoes in it, you turn the thing on, it spins the potatoes around and, and takes the skin off. Well, it just turned the whole thing to mush, and it, she was right. It never should have bought it. <laughs> lesson learned? Yeah, lesson learned. Uh, and also, by the way, on that point, one thing you've done very well in business, we'll get to shortly, is delegation. You've been a great at identifying talent, telling them what you want, making it clear what the expectations are, but then basically giving them the keys to the car. Uh, Myra was an early lesson in deferring to expertise of those who've got the feet on the ground. Exactly. And, you know, in all the sports organizations and at the bank and here at First Martin, you know, you can't do everything. And in some of those organizations, the time demands of the responsibilities I had were so great, I was forced to delegate. But I enjoy doing that. And I think it's the way to run any organization. You're only as strong as your team. Mm -hmm. And I always liked hiring guys and gals who were smarter than I am because I realized I don't know everything. And uh, I'm pretty impulsive and uh, I follow the philosophy, ready, shoot, aim. And that's not good in all cases. And I enjoyed uh, having such wonderful people around me at the Olympics, at Michigan, here at the Bank of Ann Arbor, um, it, it just is the way to do it. Give them the rope, and if they make a mistake, support them the first few times. If they start making a lot of mistakes, well, then you got to have a conversation. A fun one, I'm sure. Yeah, not a fun <laughs> one. <laughs> uh, look, that's the philosophy behind let them lead. Show them high expectations and uncompromising on that front. Right. Your buildings that you built your empire on, First Martin especially, of course, Bank of Ann Arbor we'll get to, your buildings are immaculate. You'll not find trash in front. The lawns are always well-maintained. They're shoveled. They're iced. All that stuff, they're salted and so on. Um, so high expectations always. Uh, but if, if you had to do it all yourself, you couldn't do it. So you have to hire very well, train very well, but then you have to trust them to do their jobs. Absolutely. And you have to compensate them and make them a part of a team. It, it's not all about uh, simply hiring somebody, say, go do it. You know, they become your day family. And as a part of your day family, you've got to treat them like the family. And you've got to provide the support they need uh, throughout their lives. And despite the high standards at Casey's, at Bank of Ann Arbor, at First Martin Corporation, your turnover is almost zero. Right. Right. So, it, and it, it's... The low turnover is perhaps most shocking to me, most impressive, at Casey's. Because restaurants, especially now, are notorious for tons of turnover. And there are career waitstaff there that I've seen since 1986 when you opened. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. And I think a couple of reasons the turnover is so low at Casey's is, one, to begin with, we offered retirement and health insurance. When no one does that. When no one does that in the restaurant industry. And secondly, at least to begin with, and not until covid 
we weren't open on Sundays. We gave them Sundays off. And Sundays are the second or third busiest day of the restaurant week. Gutsy, and gutsy move. It was a gutsy move. But the whole objective with Casey's was let's create a neighborhood tavern. It isn't all about money. And my whole position was, hey, if it breaks even, let's do it. If it breaks even, you can still walk about 100 feet from First Market. Ah, uh, yes. And get a good, uh, get a quality burger. That was important. <laughs> uh, that was important. <laughs> I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but I can't resist in this case. Uh, after Wittenberg, of course, you finish strong. You go to Sweden uh, for a, a post-grad year, and that was also influential for you on several fronts. Oh, that was a very interesting experience, and I wanted to go on to graduate school in economics, and my two choices were either the University of Stockholm or the London School of Economics. And since Sweden is a little bit closer to Finland, I thought I'd get a little flavor for the homeland. And I went there. I had to learn Swedish, at least the ability to have conversational Swedish and to read the textbooks. The great mm-hmm. thing about going to graduate school. You could read textbooks in Swedish. I could you know, wow. at that time. I did but not know that. In a very specialized subject of economics. And if you learn 50 terms, <laughs> you, you pretty well have it handled. And the interesting thing was because the Swedes, by the time they get to that educational level, they've all had nine years of English. Right. They've all spent a summer someplace speaking English. And so you in c- classrooms, you could speak in either English or Swedish. And that was also at the time, interestingly, that Sweden decided to switch from driving on the left side of the road to the right side of the road. And guess what day they chose of the year to make the switch? Monday. New Year's Day, <laughs> when everybody was drunk from the night before. And hungover, and yes. And it was a colossal mess. Uh, I've seen photos of it, by the way. <laughs> it, it, without the video, the photos alone tell you, do not walk on this street. <laughs> no, stay away. It this was would have been like 62 or 63, I believe. That's right, 63. And it was right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I remember I spent uh, one of the two Christmases at the University of Moscow, in in um, Russia and was uh, always bumping into Cuban students that, that wanted to bump into me, if you will. Right. Yeah. But it was a very interesting experience for me. At least. You also ran into a great professor in Stockholm, a internationally acclaimed right, economist. Right, an economist, Gunnar Myrdal. And Gunnar Myrdal in 1940 or 41 wrote the book, entitled The American Dilemma. And it was about racism in the United States. It was very interesting that that long ago, he wrote a book on that subject. His wife, by the way, was ambassador to India. Oh, wow. A pretty accomplished couple right there, obviously. Yeah, very much so. So your world is expanding quite a bit, my kid, in Detroit. Absolutely. Uh, It's becoming international. You come back to Michigan, you apply to the MBA program, get in. Um, and then here's one of the classic scenes. You take the student loan, the uh, not the real student loan, but the emergency student loan. <laughs> right. I think a grand total of 500 bucks. Is that about? Uh... That's correct. I, I consider it my venture capital in life. <laughs> <laughs> 500 bucks will not do that anymore, I don't think. But you no, did it. I did it. I borrowed $500 from the University of Michigan uh, Emergency Student Loan Fund. And I went out and optioned a piece of property. Long story short, I made $18,000 in four months 
on that investment. And uh, it was my seed capital for uh, additional investments in the real estate area at that time. Which we now call First Martin Corporation. Yep. The large, largest landowner in Washtenaw County outside of the University of Michigan itself, I believe. I think so. Yep. Has been for a long time, at least. I yeah. have to update that data, but uh, an amazingly successful program. In the process of doing that, right there, you get a taste for it. You say, hey, if I can turn 500 bucks into 18000 yeah, uh, this is a cool way to, <laughs> to make a living. It was, but that was a speculation. And what I enjoyed doing was the creative process, the designing and building buildings that would serve a need, either to house businesses, retail establishments, or residences. So <clears throat> I focused on Ann Arbor mm-hmm. and built all types of buildings. And in our career, we've never sold any. That's incredible. Uh, we always view it from a long-term perspective. And that's kind of the Asian way of looking at investment, too. Especially in, in real estate. Especially in, in Asia, they do not sell <clears throat> almost ever. Ever. Their, their properties. That's right. It's passed on from generation to generation, along with the culture of maintaining mm-hmm. it. And, and you're kind of the caretaker. It's right. the way I look at it. Like we have the First National Building, downtown Ann Arbor, which is, you know, probably the, you know, besides uh, Michigan Stadium, the most um, recognizable historic building in Ann Arbor. And uh, when I acquired it, uh, it there were 35 owners of it in the 80s. I'm the custodian. Our family will be the custodian. We we really don't own it. We have to maintain it. That's our job. And you've told your family, by the way, sell this last. Yeah. This is one of your coolest buildings, probably your most, as I said, your most iconic. And every Christmas, of course, you put a Christmas tree on top of it. This is 30-some stories up there, I believe. Not Uh, 30, but about 17. 17. There you go. I'm a writer. I yeah, got lost exactly. very quickly on that one. Uh, but that has become so iconic in Ann Arbor that when you were delayed one year putting up due to weather, I believe, somebody about five blocks away <laughs> said, where's the tree? <laughs> yeah, I got a phone call at home from this woman. Uh, it was a couple of nights before Christmas, and the wind was so strong that we had to do repairs on, on the tree. And she called me and said, I'm about to have my cocktail party, and you are our Christmas tree. Please get it on in the next hour. <laughs> I think she had too many Christmas cocktails before Maybe she so, called but it me. It is recognizable. My son will point it out. He's only six. Uh, the flag goes up, of course, uh, Michigan weekends. Yep. The, the place becomes amazing blue, well lit up there, of course. Right. Uh, a lot of fun there. July 4th, red, white, and blue, of course. Sure. Uh, you have a good time with it. So Absolutely. Um, the principles you followed, and I'm talking to Bill Martin, of course, the founder of First Martin Corporation, the Washtenaw County's biggest landowner, um, ended up being Michigan's athletic director, the president of the United States Olympic Committee, uh, one of the founders of Bank of Ann Arbor, still one of the owners of that, of course, and not least, Casey's Tavern down the street. Uh, <laughs> so there's your update on Let Them Lead. Um, your philosophy in building First Martin, you've, hold, you've come across a few basic principles, and you've hammered them home. You've not made it any more complicated than you had to. Right, right. It, it's basically hold for the long term, and the long term is generation after generation. And when you have that mindset, that means when you build a new facility, you're thinking of what should I do to make certain less, more or less indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Quality materials, uh, all the amenities, like, for instance, operate operational windows. 
a lot of buildings don't have operational windows that you can open. And, you know, we go through four seasons here and no air conditioning system can keep up with the daytime changes between mm -hmm. cool mornings and hot afternoons. So put in operating windows so people can get some fresh air and help temper the, the uh, temperatures inside. And you've also partnered with Joe O'Neill on oh, almost all your buildings. Yeah, Joe has been an absolute fantastic partner in all our projects, providing all the construction expertise we need. Uh, he's actually done several major projects for us, and we never got around to signing a contract. <laughs> <laughs> well, as they say in business, if, if a handshake's not good enough, you're probably going to be screwed. Exactly. So and exactly. it boils down to that anyway. Yeah. And if you think a contract saves you, talk to your lawyers. Yeah. Uh, you're still in court. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I've never been in court over any construction project. Yeah, got to love that. Knock on wood, that's extremely rare, yeah. of course, in that business. It is. So especially these days, you know. I take decided. the philosophy, if if there is an issue with one of our subcontractors or something, simply pay him what he asks for. Don't go to court, but don't use them again. That's smart. And that's the cheapest way out of it. Life's too short to Life's spend your short. time in court. In uh, also, disputes. by the way, it is an unsatisfying place to go if you want justice, yeah. uh, because you probably won't get it. It'll, it'll be compromised, it'll be mediated. Exactly. And if you get you get half an apology, you're lucky. Yes. So that's not the place to go for yeah. it. Uh, move on. Um, next operations, of course, uh, from First Martin, that gave you the wherewithal and the ability to open Casey's. That came next. That you was keep a, talking about Casey's. I can't like, help it. I can't it's help it. It's, it's the smallest small. of all your operations by a long shot. <laughs> but it's, but it might be the best known. <laughs> that may be. Not, not might have known than U of M or USOC, perhaps. But uh, <laughs> First Martin is this very quiet empire that really no one quite knows about. They don't always connect the buildings. Well, we don't We don't have a sign on the door, and uh, we paid $3,000 for our office building. First Martin International Headquarters, yeah. I believe. Yeah, it's World Headquarters <laughs> right here $3, on Depot Street. Um, Casey's started on a lark, essentially. It did. You're driving down the street. Well, what happened was Joe O'Neill and I uh, owned Washington Lumber, and we bought it because it was about to close and we both had become pretty attached to the staff that worked there. Mm. And the owners of the facility were from Flint, Michigan, and they were up in years and they wanted to retire. We thought we could turn the lumber yard around because it was losing money. The bottom line is we couldn't. So we closed it. So what happened at that stage of the game? We sat there scratching our head for a year as to what we were going to do with it. Well, I read the center column of the Wall Street Journal one day, the one that's a human interest story. Uh, one of the best pieces of journalism every day for any reader out there. Absolutely. Everybody should read that. because Nothing it, to do with business. It, or it's not political right? either. It's just wonderful topics. So they had one on neighborhood taverns in Chicago. And the writer had done a tour of neighborhood taverns in Chicago and talked about how they had become community resources. And the light bulb went on with us. And that light bulb was all about, all about, um, you know, why don't we try a neighborhood tavern that's never advertises. It does not focus on students. 
And the guy said in his Wall Street Journal article, my unscientific survey, the places that do the best are ones that are named after guys, buds, dicks, and so <laughs> forth. Hence, that's why we came up with the name Casey's. And of course, the old song. The old song. The engineer. Casey, right. And then Casey's at the bat because we're not far away from softball fields. That's right. Well, it works for us and it's been one of the most popular spots around town. And they do not reserve a table for you. No, no, no. I wait in line a lot of times. I say, Sally, let's get out of here. We're going over to <laughs> someplace else. This place is too popular. No one goes there anymore. Right. The Yogi Berra line. I, I'm no different than anybody else. And I don't deserve any perks. Well, that's where the Detroit Uper background, of course, kicks in. One of my favorite little scenes there. Uh, you're there at the at the table there waiting at the counter, waiting to get your seat like everyone else is, of course. And the guy's got his legal pad. It's been the same system forever. Writes down names, tells you to be 20 minutes or so on a Friday, especially at 30 <laughs> minutes, whatever. And uh, the guy behind you starts barking at the guy saying, I know Bill Martin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That's happened a few times. <laughs> You don't know him very well because he's right behind you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's fun. Casey's has been fun, and um, I hope it can last forever, you know, how restaurants go. I I mean, I think in our career in the real estate world, we've had as uh, guests in our facilities, we don't call them tenants, Mm -hmm. and we're not landlords. We don't lord over anybody. Mm -hmm. We are the host, and they are our guest, and we would write our leases that way. And, you know, we're absolutely no different than anybody else, and we want to treat them the same as we're treated. And and that's it. Uh, Over my shoulder against the wall is priorities, and there are only two. And it says, one, keep our guests to lease vacant space. In other words, get busy. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's all it is. And that's about it. I mean, and it's framed here. You wrote that years ago. Yeah, I did. Uh, my, my, scratched it out, obviously. My it's, son, Mike, <laughs> framed that. You don't need anything else. And again, because we have that long-term ownership mentality, you treat your facilities different. We don't mind spending 10 15% more on maintenance and upkeep than other buildings may do because we're not in the business to build and sell. Mm-hmm. We're in the business to hold forever. There's no turn and burn is the idea. None. So none. And your clients appreciate that you keep them. Your client turnover is also very low. Very low. It is. About as low as it can get in that business, I think. Yeah, probably. You know, we're we're not scientific in keeping track sure. of all that stuff. We're more interested in what do we need to do this minute uh, for our guests. Now everybody thinks a tavern is fun. Uh, probably nobody thinks a bank is fun, but it has been fun. Uh, in the mid-90s, yeah. you decide to open Bank of Ann Arbor. What prompted that seemingly unlikely decision? <laughs> it was frustration with what was happening in the banking world in general. And unfortunately, that trend is happening today. 20 years ago in the United States, we probably had 20,000 banks. 10 years ago, we had 10,000 banks. Now we're around 5,000 banks. Wow. The smaller banks are getting gobbled up. And what happened in the mid-90s is all the local banks that I dealt with got acquired. And when you a bank acquires a smaller bank in a community, they change the lending profiles. They change your letter of credits. They change your lines of credit. The people you deal with changes 
And this had happened two or three times in Ann Arbor, in Ann Arbor in the mid nineties. And I just got frustrated and basically said, Ann Arbor is smart enough and wealthy enough that we can have our own bank. Let's form one. So I had no experience in the banking world. And so I went up to Lansing to talk to the regulators who issue banking charters and discuss with them starting a new bank, got the requirements, went back, had my wife put together the business plan based on other plans that we had received, and just told her wherever there's a dollar sign, leave a blank and I'll fill it in. <laughs> and Which, by the way, normally is considered the most important thing. We don't know that part yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know what I was going to do on that. And so, you know, I, I said, this is a leap of faith. I bought the building that is the headquarters now for the Bank of Ann Arbor. Right on Washington. Right on Washington. It had been a former bank, which was a wonderful asset to have. You know, the vault, the teller cages, everything. That probably saved us six plus months Hmm. and a lot of money and being able to open. But then I had to raise the capital they required. I had to put together a board of directors. And I raised the capital basically from within the, the business community and told them, buy a little bit of stock, do a little bit of business with us to, to begin with. And this will be a community institution that I hope will outlive all of us because um, the intention is not to sell it. We've been pestered at times by other banks that would like to buy us. But uh, I think uh, a community takes pride in having a local bank where you can run into the barber shop or the beer vault, the guy that you bank with. And uh, my wife always likes to say, you get you get a real person when you call there. You don't get... For me, it's Joe. It's Joan Hendrick, by the way. And Joan, if you're listening, thank you for all your help <laughs> over the years. Uh, I used to live a block away. Um, and your bank had opened when I was still at a major chain. I'll keep their name out of it. My brother moves back to town. And he says, where should I bank? I said, I'm not banking there yet, but I'm hearing great things about Bank of Ann Arbor before I knew you. Mm -hmm. uh, the word is already getting out. People just love this bank. No silliness in the fees and all the rest. I mean, right. all pretty, you know, standard and limited. Um, they don't try to, you know, you bounce the big check first to make sure you bounce 10 more checks. Uh, <laughs> you get a call. I got a call from Joan Hendricks saying, yeah. hey, John, you should probably get down here today. <laughs> and she's right. And I listen. So yeah. I walk across the block and my brother loved it. And I said, okay, I'm moving my money. Not that you're going to retire on my account, of course, but, uh, when I left the big bank, the guy said, I got to ask you. And to his credit, he asked. I said, you know, why are you, uh, why, why are you moving to Bank of Ann Arbor? And I said, well, do you know my name? He goes, no. I said, they already do. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it, in some ways, it's that simple. And with that comes all the policies. I've gotten three or four properties through you now. Um, and again, you're not going to retire in my account, but it's been a, a seamless process, as, as problem-free as banking can be. Well, it's great to hear. I wish it was that way with probably all customers, but there's probably some slip-ups. Nobody is perfect. Not but, many because you've gone from one building yeah. to you have about 25, 30 now. Yeah, somewhere in that area. And you've bought a three other, two or three other chains along the way. Two, two or three other banks. Yeah. Yeah. Liber and, New Liberty Bank in Plymouth, First National Bank of Howell, which is the largest bank in, Oakland, in Livingston County. Mm -hmm. We bought the Bank of, of Birmingham and we're closing re, uh, on January 24th on M Bank in Birmingham also. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. 
that's banking. It's been stuff. shockingly fun. Tim yeah. Marshall, one of the best hires you've made in all Absolutely. your Absolutely. He runs companies. the place. He's the kind of guy when I'm out there, you know, depositing my piddlesome writer checks, he'll come out and say hello. I'm sorry, you don't get that at the major chains. Yeah. Nor the Tootsie Rolls, by the way. Thanks for those. (laughs) (laughs) It used to be apples, but with COVID, we we, we can't put out fruit anymore. There you go. I probably ate more of the Tootsie Rolls than the apples, sad to say. But uh, there we go. Uh, That's worked incredibly well. So that's your third business right there. And then in 99, your friend, former president of the University of Michigan, Lee Bollinger, he calls you with a very with an offer you probably should have refused. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. He said, "Bill, I need your help." And what he said was, "Would you mind sitting as the interim athletic director of the university while we do a national search?" And I said, uh, "Well, give me a day to think about it." And it, and all you get is twenty four hours to think about. It. A complete and total career change. Right. And now you are, you have been the director of sailing for the U.S. Olympic Committee. You've had some experience. I'd been president of the national governing body of the sport of sailing. And I'd also been sailing's representative on the board of directors of the United States Olympic Committee. And for you non-sports fans out there, it's on a par with the boxing commissioner Whoever runs USA Basketball, right. et cetera, there's always one leader per sport that That's right. answers to the USOC president. Right. So you did have experience leading at a very high level right. uh, athletics. And that's a complicated sport also, sailing, for a lot of reasons. So it's not right. not chump change, but this is still quite a leap to be AD. Right. Well, I think what Lee was looking at, uh, he needed somebody to fill the seat immediately. It was vacant. And he didn't view me as a long-term prospect, I don't think at all, but he knew me as a businessman. And at that time, the challenges financially of the athletic department were very significant. $3 million in debt. Red ink annually. Red ink annually. How about this? $3 million in debt and built to stay that way. That was the formula and probably going to get worse. Exactly. The buildings were decrepit at that point, way behind the the competitive field. What I like to stay at best, they were historically significant. <laughs> <laughs> the nicest way to say this. Yeah, it was. But, you know, I, I agreed to start in March of 2000, and he agreed that he would find a replacement by Labor Day, you know, in September. So I said, okay, I'll devote six months to Michigan. Uh, the university was a large client of ours. Uh, I have a degree from Michigan. Sally has a degree from Michigan. I felt an obligation to do it, and I understood business. And so I went in there for six months, and uh, they hired a headhunter to do a national search. I had no part in that process. I was focused on what I could do to uh, turn the business aspects of the department around to deal with some of the sports that had challenges. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Towards the end of that summer, I put together a transition three-ring binder with what I wanted to turn over to whoever was going to replace me and say, here's what I recommend to do. Uh, And I was asked by the headhunter a couple of times, would I consider being a candidate? No, I don't want to. I started this bank. I want to get back to working there. Uh, I now have a home down in Florida Keys, which I like going to to fish and sail. Well, what happened is, you know, sometime in late August, 
he calls me and says, Bill, come here, I want to talk to you. And by the way, I never signed a contract with the university. I didn't want to take any compensation because I didn't want people to think I was doing this for money. So I said, no contract. In fact, two conditions. One was your salary was $1. And I believe believe you never received it. I never did. (laughs) But you know what the other one was? And he actually stumbled on it. this, This for Michigan fans is very interesting. If you remember the halo. Maze halo that surrounded Michigan Stadium, uh, that would look like a Sunoco gas station. <laughs> uh, I said, Lee, a dollar, and I get to take the halo down immediately. He would not agree to begin with on the halo, and he had a very sensitive reason for that. He had asked this Washington architectural firm, what was the uh, name? Venturi, Venturi Scott and Brown who was doing several buildings on campus, Mm -hmm. the life science buildings, I believe, and doing a wonderful job of it. But he wanted them to put some life into the stadium. They went down, did the halo. My predecessor took all the fault for doing it. It wasn't Tom Goss. It was Lee Bollinger. And so he felt that it would be insult to the architect if he tore it down. But I stayed fast on my requirements, and he caved after a couple of days. It didn't take long because he knew he needed to get somebody in the seat. And so, you know, I took it down and I scrapped it. I put it through metal scrap. I I didn't (laughs) want it to appear on eBay or any part of it later on. And so you go back to that meeting I had with him in late August. He said, Bill, here I have a petition signed by all the coaches that essentially says, keep you if I can. I was shocked. I didn't know that that had happened at all. It was behind <laughs> your back. You had no knowledge of it. No and, knowledge at and all. Your, and your answer had been repeatedly, no, 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 no. no. To Bollinger, no. the search firm. Right. Well, at that t- by that time, I know there were two or three major things that had to be done to fix the finances, to change the direction of the basketball program and put a new coach in there. Headed toward probation at that point. Oh, yes. But that went back to uh, the early 90s. But right. that oh, was yeah. a problem I had to do. It was not with. your creation, but you you're going to inherit it. Uh, a, a decade later. Right. Exactly. And I knew you couldn't change major coach when you're an interim. That's not fair to whoever the, the permanent uh, director is going to be. So I wasn't going to do it. But I knew there were three or four things that had to be done. And at that stage, I said, okay, if I do stay a little bit, then I can get these things done. Because I know whoever comes in on a permanent basis, they'll take my, they'll look at my advice and they'll say, let's see what happens over the next year. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that we would, you know, lose a year, basically. lose a year. And I didn't uh, want to see it. So I said, okay. I'll stay three years. And he said, no, Bill, in higher education, we do things in five years. Because <laughs> it said, takes but, longer. <laughs> yeah. And, and he said, look, if you want to leave after three years, I get it. I said, also, Lee, you and I get along pretty well. We met in the faculty locker room together. Our lockers were just across the bench from us. At the IM building. At the IM building. If you leave... I got the right to leave. Mm-hmm. 
Well, he said, I, I don't plan on leaving. Well, he left a year later. <laughs> to and, Columbia, it must be said. To, and he's still there That's 26 right. years later. Pretty roughly. amazing. It is amazing. Right. So I went through three different athletic directors in my first three, or presidents, I'm sorry, my first three years as athletic director. But that's how I ended up staying. I said, I don't want any compensation for a few years. Let's get this finances mm-hmm. straightened out and no contract. And so I'll never forget what my job description was. Uh, it was never written down from Lee. It was go down there and see what you can do. I love that. <laughs> go down there and see what you can do. Put that in a frame, right? Yeah, I should have. <laughs> go down there and see what you can do, which yeah. is what you did. Yeah. It, uh, you, first of all, you fixed basketball. You got Tommy Amaker in there first. And he did a wonderful job. He did job do a wonderful for, job. It, He's a class act who wonderful. got Michigan as, you know, clean on and off the court, of course. Absolutely. Um, never quite got to the tournament in part due to the hangover of the probation. That was certainly a factor. Yeah, uh, scholarships and so on. But he went to Harvard and has done a very good job there. It seems to be a great fit. Absolutely. Um, in his place, of course, picked up John Beeline. Um, he was getting on the radar nationally, but not that much. It was still a, huh, pick when you picked him. Yep. Um, explain the John Beeline hire. But, you know, with all the major head coaches, I would always bring them in and I would say to them, what should I do tomorrow if you get hit by the school bus coming down? The <laughs> a lovely conversation, but a necessary one. <clears throat> it is. Be, I, a couple of reasons. I wanted to get their insights. Hmm. What kind of guy do you admire? Yeah, I'd like to see who, who they would hmm. suggest. That's good. I would do that. But in the case of Beeline, you know, I really enjoy basketball. I watch a lot of basketball. And he was at West Virginia at the time, and he had a big center who could shoot the three. Pitznagel was the guy's and name. And you do not forget. Right. <laughs> and so I started watching him. I started to listen to the play-by-play analysts say, okay, this is an out-of-bounds play. I remember in one NIT game, you watch what Beeline does here. He'll figure out something. It was at the end of a game at the buzzer, and he said, he's going to come up with some play and he's going to win this. And he did. And this was at Madison Square Gardens. And I, I always remember that one play. But I started watching his um, post-game interviews to see what his demeanor was. Very sharp. Very sharp, clear, totally under control. He wasn't a screamer on the bench ever. Mm-hmm. And he obviously took average talent and got an awful lot out of him. He, he knew how to teach basketball. And it's ironic that he's always been a head coach his entire career. Never, never an assistant. And so when I decided to make a change from Tommy Amaker, and that was probably the hardest decision I had to make, simply because, as you said, Amaker, what a class act of a guy. Really was and is. Uh, I knew where I was going to go, even though you go through the motions of having to look at others, because what if you can't get him? But I made a beeline right to him. A beeline to beeline. <laughs> a beeline to beeline. And to his credit, in one meeting, more or less, there may have been a little carryover for a day or so, we essentially shook hands. And I insisted that Kathleen, his wife, be in that interview so she could. Uh, evaluate me to see who her husband may be working for. And it helps the candidate also because when he goes home, she can't say, did you ask him 
this question? <laughs> Did you ask him that question? Because she's sitting uh, in the room. That, that man has been happily married to Sally for many years and yeah. understand right. how these conversations take place. Furthermore, look, at this level of the game, if you're going to be a top 15, top 10 basketball coach, that's a full-time job for your whole family. Right. And if she's not on board or if it's Kim Bartorico, if it's a female coach, your husband's not on board, right. it's not going to work. Right. Right. It's and, too demanding. And we made a deal on a handshake with him never coming to Ann Arbor. Wow. Think of that. Pretty pretty gutsy on both sides, of course, but it, also smart because it keeps you out of the papers. Yeah, I think that says an awful lot about the Block M and the reputation of the University of Michigan. And I had several instances in my life that, hey, who am I? I'm Bill Martin. I'm nobody. But when they see I'm athletic director of Michigan, it's a totally different situation. Uh, You're definitely somebody, but people don't always know that you run a bank, own a bank, et cetera, and First Martin Corporation and whatnot. But as you said before, when you're now, let's jump over to USOC president. Um, when you're USOC president, another job, by the way, you got a habit of doing this, by the way, <laughs> getting jobs you don't want, don't need, um, and don't get paid for, I noticed. So that's right. That's a brilliant career move, by the way. <laughs> All three of my... Uh, major jobs in the field of amateur athletics, president of the United States Sailing Association, athletic director here at Michigan, and and president of the U.S. Olympic Committee. I sought none of them, <laughs> and they happened kind of by accident. But there you were. You'd finally been nominated to vice president of the USOC, and you thought, okay, fine, because your friends around you pump you up for that. You didn't ask for it. By the end of that meeting, it turns out the president had been basically fired. And you walk in, becoming the vice president, you walk out the president. That, a, that's essentially <laughs> it. I never, it was vice president slash secretary. And the major job of the secretary was to read the role. And I said, okay, I can do that. I've got the confidence <laughs> to do that. But I never served in that role. I never read the role at any of our meetings. <laughs> Because you never got to it, <laughs> never got to it because the president was forced to step down. And the bylaws said that the vice president slash secretary automatically becomes the president. So holy smokes. And I can tell you, it's a challenge to do both the University of Michigan athletic director and president of the Olympics simultaneously. And, simultaneously. and that's where I was really Good on delegation. Two phones. Yeah, two phones, one for Michigan, one for the Olympics. I did not set up a separate office, what everybody advised me to do here in Ann Arbor. I said, I'm not going to have any staff. All I want is the phone. I'm going to delegate the various roles of the president to others. For instance, all of the international representation and travel I gave to a vice president who probably should have been president. He had all the tools necessary. A Harvard-trained attorney from Boston, great guy, said, okay, you're the Secretary of State for the U.S. Olympic Committee. You're going to represent us in Europe at IOC meetings, uh, et cetera. He loved it, and he did a great job. I had to make only a couple of trips to Europe during my tenure. I had to do more at the beginning because when I became president, the Olympics were a major embarrassment to the country. It was above the fold on the front page of every newspaper. 
people have to remember that the uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee was created by an act of Congress. And as such, we reported to Congress. And Congress was mad. They were holding public hearings on the dysfunctions, the conflict of interest within the leadership. And so all of a sudden, uh, here there, I am. There was corruption. Yeah. There's the drug issues, steroids, and whatnot. Yeah, it was a mess. Uh, both domestically and internationally. Yes. Uh, a country that normally has very good reputations. USOC had a very bad one. Absolutely. And, and it was deserved in, in many respects at that time. And our sponsors. And remember, the U.S. Olympic Committee is not financed by our country. It's financed by the major sponsors and the TV, North American TV rights fees. So it's Kodak, it's Coca-Cola, it's NBC. Right. And all that crowd. And they don't like to be associated, of course, with trouble. No, they don't. Or embarrassment. Right. And that was a big part of it. So I had to, my literally very first month as now the president, go walk the halls of Congress. And I've been to Washington, D.C. twice in my life. <laughs> and Happily avoided it. <laughs> right. And I went around and met with probably a half a dozen congressmen, multiple representatives. Uh, and I can tell you, and this gets back to what I mentioned earlier, every place I went, every public official I, I met with, all showed incredible respect for the office of athletic director of the University of Michigan. I had immediate credibility going in there that this university had created over decades. And it made it a very easy conversation. And every one of those conversations were the same. I saw relief that somebody was a sitting athletic director at a major, highly respected university was now running the Olympics. And all they said- So amateur hour was done. Amateur hour was done. And their message to me was, fix it and let me know how we can help. That was it. And then every meeting before it ended, it turned to college football. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not an agenda, but hey, how about them Wolverines? Yeah, how about them? How do they look? Oh, exactly. There's only a few years moved, of course, from the national title in 97. Right. Highly competitive teams, of course, throughout this time. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That's pretty funny right there. I interviewed John McCain, the legendary senator, of course, and presidential candidate, for a story on you for Northwest Airlines magazine. Must have been 04, I think. Uh, And he was fun to talk to. And he said, look, this was a mess. And what I loved about Bill is he had no other dog in the fight. Uh, he had no other agenda other than let's keep it clean, let's keep it competitive. That's it. Yep. And he said, after all the, and I'm paraphrasing here, but after all the crap we've been through for over a decade at that point, he said, you don't know how refreshing that was. Give me a problem I don't have. That's what he basically said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. we, had, we had enough to work, work with here in Congress. This should not be one of the things that we have to deal with. Right. Um, right. That was a strong feeling. His his recommendation for you was an A+. Plus. Well, I don't think John McCain historically was in the habit of doing that. Yeah, uh, he spoke truth to power without hesitation. Right. Um, so that that got my attention when he said that. So I I had to testify before him and um, didn't really know him that well, but you know, few meetings and that that was you it. Know, I can say this: his BS detector works very well, <laughs> and uh, and you did not set it off. So. Right. So there's that issue. John uh, Bob Teeter, longtime friend of yours, presidential pollster as well as campaign advisor to many, including George H.W. Bush, 
He gave you great advice before you became the Michigan Athletic Director, which you also used became the president of the USOC. And I've given this advice to friends of mine and corporate friends and so on with consulting situations and so on. When you become the leader of anything, this is a great way to start. Tell us that story. Well, I, I think you're referring to the fact he said, go in there and tell them what you expect. Tell them you want them to be honest with you. My door is always open. Come in and tell me if it's a problem directly. Don't talk about it in the hallways. I'll deal with it. No repercussions. There you go. Perfect. Uh, you also said in that same meeting with U of M Athletics Department as well as USOC, um, this is what we stand for. This is what we're going to stand for. Right. This is how we're going to do it. Right. And again, if there are any issues along the way, you can talk to me directly. Sure. And my advice on that one is very simple. If you have a problem with someone, you have two possible solutions. One, talk to that person or two, shut up. Yeah. Because <laughs> everything else makes it worse. Yeah. And nothing else will make, will make it better. One of the other pieces of advice I got when I went to the Olympics to begin with as president from our PR consultant, who was Harold Burson, yes. he said, you have to go East Coast to West Coast and meet with the editorial boards of all the major newspapers and tell them how you're what you're going to do. you got to get the Olympics off the front page of the newspaper. That's what his objective was. And by the way, as a media guy, I can tell you, if you're on the front page, it's almost never good news. <laughs> that goes D6. That's, there you go. That's in the back, sadly. There you go. And so I literally went New York Times, you know, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, USA Today, and I met with their editorial boards. And uh, every place I went, I started the same way. Number one, our PR people wanted to accompany me. And I said, no, I'm going by myself. Nobody's going with no me. No entourage, no Nobody. PR handlers, no lawyers. I went in the door, I sat down, and I said, I'm Bill Martin. I'm here representing the Olympics. My day job is at the University of Michigan. Here's my cell phone. Here's my email address. Here's my office. Here's my home phone. You can call me on any time. Everything I say today is on the record. What do you want to know? And right there, by the way, from a media point of view, is so unusual and so disarming. You're halfway home. Yeah. Now, you need good answers, obviously. You can't just yeah. charm your way through it. Um, but that is so unusual. You got full houses, basically, in all the conference rooms. Right. And USA Today gave you an interesting response. And you said, why are there so many people here today? Yeah. USA Today probably had 30 people in the room, more or less. And they're videoing it. And I asked them on the way out, why? Why normally I'm meeting with a half a dozen people at each of the newspapers. They said, well, we're a national newspaper. You're our national team. That's why we have such a big interest. In I, gotta, I love that. So in the process with Burson's advice, you had toured Congress. You turned toured the sponsors and the media right. coast to coast to try to start changing the image right. uh, and tell them what you're going to do right. of the USOC. Now, within a few years, both U of M. And USA, USSC had the same problems. Very exactly. scandals, financial problems, facilities problems. In, internal morale issues. Internal morale issues had all been turned around in both cases within a few years, incredibly. Yeah. Now, of course, you stayed at Michigan to finish up the big house uh, renovation there. Uh, 14 buildings had been built or renovated substantially, a la the Chrysler and the stadium. You left it in shockingly good shape Yep. Yeah. Uh, after taking it over in shockingly bad shape. 
um, and built a, built a state. Those buildings aren't going anywhere. They still look new 10 years later. Yeah. You got to be proud of that. Oh, I am. Definitely. We had a great team that did every one of those. They all deserve credit for it. And, you know, that's why I say I had great people. Well, those guys will take a bullet. That's Kurt Gobrand. That's Joe Parker. Uh, Jason Winters. These guys will all take a bullet. Mike for you. Stevenson. It goes on and on. You but know, those guys, well, the loyalty they have for you is is as intense as the loyalty of Bank of Ann Arbor, First Martin, <laughs> or yes, my favorite, Casey's. There you go, Casey's. So, yeah. When you look back at the whole thing, what do you think? Now, you're not done. You're still here no. uh, in your 80s working here at First Martin Corporation, yeah. of course. Right. Um, staying busy in all these things, the bank, Casey's, and whatnot. Um, when you look back at the whole thing, what do you see? What do you think? You know, I hardly think back. Hmm. I'm always worried or, or challenge, what's the challenge we're going to have tomorrow? Like this morning, I was a meeting at the bank, uh, our monthly executive committee meeting, and we're looking at how are we going to integrate these two banks that we're, we've just acquired and do it seamlessly? And how, how are we going to stay up to speed on financial technology, the next generation of bankers? The kids, are we providing the right sort of mobile banking for them? Those are interesting little challenges that uh, you deal with. And, and it's, so it's you're working fun. on like phone banking technology right now in your 80s at your bank. Yeah. That would keep you young. Well, why not? Oh, crazy. You know, <laughs> I, I, I would flunk retirement if I tried. I know that. And, you know, I still enjoy racing sailboats, but I see that's, you know, I, I've done that enough that uh, there's nothing else I could really accomplish. So it's time to, you know, do a little bit of cruising. I know I flunked at golf, too, so I'm not going to try that. The problem with golf is you have to either play the sport or not play it. Right. If you're going to play it, you got to be yeah. out there at least once a week. Yeah. And right. usually more. I, I'm more interested in being in the grandkids business, you know, playing around with them and watching them develop and grow. Been happily married now for over a half a century. Yeah. Uh, the lovely Sally Martin, who's uh, quiet but highly effective. I've always been very impressed by her, and I'm not alone with that. Uh, Seth Martin, of course. Mike Martin, your two kids. Yep. Mike is now here at First Martin Corporation. Right. And between them, they've got a, a passel of grandkids you see quite often. Right, right. And, and it's fun. Mm -hmm. it, it really is. And, you know, people have asked me, well, you know, what did you want to do in life? I, I, I can say I want to raise good kids and maybe leave this world or my community a little better place than I found it. If I do that, I'm happy. Well, you've done that more, of course. So well, uh, before I leave, a question I ask all my guests. I really enjoyed this one. I think I already know the answer in your case, but try me. Uh, <laughs> your favorite teacher of all time. Oh, my favorite teacher of all time. I, I would probably have to say Coyle at Wittenberg because he combined attributes that I so respected, professionalism, but a personal touch and commanded the respect of everybody in the classroom, even the screw-off guys. <laughs> I've asked this question. There you go. To, that's saying something right there. A fraternity kid, whatever else, after a night's party. Uh, I've asked this question to, from Vancouver to Sao Paulo to Buenos Aires. Um, in English, Espanol, and Portuguese, and never once is the answer is the guy was easy. Uh, it's never come back that way. But also cannot just be tough. Got to be caring, passionate about the subject as well as the students. Yeah. Uh, that's what you've done here, by the way, at Casey's, at uh, First Martin, at Bank of Ann Arbor. You're not an easy boss, uh, but you're a boss whose employees don't leave, and yeah. they could. 
Yeah. Um, you got high expectations, but uh, there's a connection there. This is your day family, as you say. It is the day family, and you have to recognize and treat them as if they are your family because most of them spend more time with you during the day than they do their evening family. That's also sad but true. Yeah, it is. It is sad but true. It's certainly true. true Maybe not during a COVID period, but... (laughs) There we go. I also always end up with three big takeaways, which I'm pulling out here, always spontaneously. Uh, Not prepared, people, I swear to God. One, I will say in your case, bet on yourself. The $500 emergency student loan. And by the way, that might be the single best investment that Michigan has ever made. <laughs> they, they got paid back. They got paid back a couple of times <laughs> due yeah. to your generosity and sure. your friend, Stephen Ross, of course, you've been in you know, there as well. So that worked out very well for them, but also for you. You bet in yourself uh, when you didn't have 500 bucks in your pocket. Right. Um, so bet in yourself. Two, uh, have a vision. Um, you didn't know all the details, but you knew what the thing would look like, what it feel like mm-hmm. at First Martin, at Bank of Ann Arbor, at U of M, at USOC. And you share that vision with your people every time. So that's right. a big thing. Third thing, and you you might be the single best I've seen at this delegation. You got to recruit the right people and know who they are. You got to train them the way you want things done. And then you got to hand over the keys to the car. You got to trust right. them. That's right. And you've done that. So right. those are my three takeaways. You might disagree with those. No, I, I do. I, I think that sums it up in life. And uh, it's wonderful that you're doing these podcasts on this subject. I think uh, everybody can benefit from talking and learning from you. And I guess I have to go back and listen to the other podcasts. Can I get them online? I'm afraid you can. Yes. Let them lead by bacon.com. My listeners already know that one. And this is our 17th out of the batch. We've got Carol Hutchins, uh, one of your good friends, of course, on there. We got, uh, uh, we need to get John Beeline. I'm getting him down the road, but um, uh, we got Red Berenson. Got Red Berenson. Got Greg Meyer, the Boston Marathon champion, of course. Right. Uh, Folks like that. So it's been a lot of fun. What's interesting about this process, since you brought Mm -hmm. it up, and what the heck, we got a minute here, um, how different, of course, banking is from real estate, from property development, from the Olympics, from running the Boston Marathon, uh, from coaching hockey and so on. And yet, I'm sorry, leadership is leadership. And if you really boil it down, you know, these three things are always a little bit different with everyone yeah. I talk to. But nobody I've talked to would disagree with these three. Mm-hmm. And you would not disagree with Red's three no. either or nope. Carol Hutchins' three. Nope. Um, the, handling people is handling people. What I find in business is not the hard things that trip them up, the banking knowledge, the Joe O'Neill engineering knowledge, et cetera, that you have to have financial knowledge. It's usually the quote-unquote easy things that screw things up. Yep. We, we do the hard things well and the easy things pretty poorly as a rule. When I look at a company that's failing – Technology may be part of it, or financial acumen, no doubt. These are these play a role. That means you hired the wrong people, and you gave them the wrong training, and you didn't monitor things, and right. they're off the ranch. Right. Um, so it usually boils down to people, and you've mastered that very well. Well, good luck with the podcast, the book, and is there a movie in the future based uh, on your we're book? We're talking to a guy on Friday, so we'll see about that. That would be wonderful. Bill, it's Hollywood. It's all talk until you see, <laughs> until the check clears. Uh, but the talk has been good. So we'll see what happens. Yes. Great. So good. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Bill. I really appreciate it. I know our listeners do. This has been Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading today. I'm John U. Bacon. You can find out more at letthemleadbybacon.com, including the book. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time with episode 18. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Let Them Lead, a podcast about the risks and rewards of leading in today's world. You can connect with our host, John U. Bacon, 
author of Let Them Lead, Unexpected Lessons in Leadership from America's Worst High School Hockey Team, by visiting his website, letthemleadbybacon.com. We hope you had some fun, learned a few things you can use tomorrow, and think about the rest of your life. Come back next week for more Unexpected Lessons in Leadership, and we'll see you then. 